The mission of Pardon Me is to inform, motivate, and most importantly, humanize individuals who have made mistakes but have received gubernatorial and presidential pardons. Pardon Me is a brand for those who support second chances. Yo, 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 yo. Welcome to the Pardon Me Podcast, where every episode is designed to bring guests into your living room, car, or wherever you listen to your podcast at to share their stories of perseverance and success. The guests of the Pardon Me Podcast have successfully served their time in prison and have received a formal pardon through the gubernatorial or presidential process. Our goal at Pardon Me is to use their stories to inform, motivate, and inspire you, our audience. I'm your host of the Pardon Me podcast, Joshua Johnson, otherwise known as former inmate number 305178. And I'm joined, as always, by my good friend, the teacher, Cam Beats, uh, who today is uh, hanging out right next to me here. We've we, we been keeping uh, keeping the homie out of the Pardon Me corner uh, for the past few episodes, which I has been real that. nice. Now, that's all right, man. That. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm here to be seen. I, I, and right I appreciate it, man. It's, it's nice to have you closer, man. We had a conversation. <laughs> Um, before we dive in and begin, man, we always have to start our episode and say thank you to our official beverage sponsor, Be Clear Water, uh, where they're creating access to clean drinking water globally while planting trees along the way. Uh, man, Cam Beats, you know, we talk about this every time, right? They're currently in six countries, and with every case of water they sell, tree gets planted. Man, this is, uh, I'm telling you, this is water from the heavens. Uh, you see on the bottom there, we got a scroll going across there. Or, uh, uh, you know, Cam Beats got to throw the squirrel on there. You threw me off. Okay. Yeah, I know. We started talking about this. Here we go. Absolutely delicious water. <laughs> uh, but be clear, please go visit their website. Black owned. Black owned. Black 100% black owned. Veteran owned. Uh, family owned and nurse owned. Uh, the homie Mahdi, man, he's really doing some great things. Let me tell you about this water. This water is so refreshing. And today he gave me some packs to try out. We got elderberry lemonade. So we got some packs to throw right in there. I'm you telling got, you. You ain't got one. Man, no, nah, no, nah, that's yours. I already oh, I started. That. I already okay. started mine. Uh, so yeah, we really did. You, let me let me go ahead and take a sip before we begin here. Hey, um, shout out also uh, to Marty, but shout out to uh, Master P. Um, I'm gonna say this every episode. Master P actually <laughs> uh, drank his water on his live uh, show that he tries he all did, his articles he and these uh, uh these products. And uh, he gave it the uh, rounding thumbs up, saying it was refreshing. So it wasn't just me just saying, man, this shit is good as hell. <laughs> it was delicious. It is delicious. Right, it is. And I'm telling you, it's best when it's cold. In this in this aluminum, it's so good. Um, but yeah, yeah, shout out, man. Be Clear Water. Definitely go out and support our sponsor who decided to support us here at Part Me. Speaking of Part Me, you can catch Part Me on uh, Part Me 22. Yes, sir. And you can go ahead and get caught up on all the episodes this season. We're kicking off season two uh, today here. Uh, we've already done six episodes for season one. Uh, so we'll be kicking off season two here and uh, uh, really excited today. Really, really excited today. Uh, so what's going on with your camp beats? Nothing much. Nothing much. Um, starting season two. Um, 
I'm back in uh, school again, trying to finish. This, What's up? This uh, this dissertation. I'm, I'm uh, all but this uh, all but dissertation. That's where I am right now. Finish all coursework. It's got to finish everything up and finish this writing. And hopefully next time I'll be doctor. Right, doctor, right. Uh, we're gonna get rid of uh, teacher and we're gonna call you the doctor. Yeah, the the, the edd. The doc. The edd. The doc <laughs> and the inmate. Boy, I tell you, it's a it's a power couple around here, right, man. Right. Ain't no couple pause. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we're gonna we're gonna jump right in, man. I, I can't even tell y'all how excited I am today about today's episode. Um, man, I, I don't even know where to start. You know what I'm saying? I'm just yeah. I'm, I'm so excited with the um, with the guests that we're bringing on uh, to the episode today to really kick off season seven, season seven, season six. Man, look at me, man. I, look, the water ain't no alcohol. I promise, no alcohol here. Season two, episode seven. But really excited um, to have this guest here today. So our guest we have here today is uh, Sarita Staub. She's the founder, president, and CEO of Operation Restoration. Shout out to this dope shirt that they sent me up here uh, after I met where I met her when I was in New Orleans. Uh, Operation Restoration is a nonprofit organization dedicated to the support of women and girls impacted by incarceration. Sarita's fight for the rights of women and girls impacted by incarceration began with her own personal struggle. And we're going to talk about that a little bit here today. I, I, I guarantee I know this sister is not going to come on here uh, and, and, and shortchange us or shortcut us. And I want to highlight one other thing before we bring Rome. Operation Restoration is the first ever New Orleans nonprofit focused solely on formerly incarcerated women rejoining society. Let me tell you, it's about to be a dope show. Sarita, welcome to the Pardon Me podcast. Thank y'all. I didn't even know y'all had put me on the screen. I was looking down. I was like, man. <laughs> oh, I guess I got to caught you doing something that you, you know, <laughs> scratch your head or digging your nose or something. But we you're, lucky. You. You're, luck you're lucky. You're lucky. after, you know, six. <laughs> I, I don't know how much of the intro that you heard us give you here, but we, uh, we were hyping you up, just saying this is going to be our best show ever. Well, you know, I'll try to deliver. <laughs> so we always start off each show. Well, obviously, we start with the intro like we do, but we also read uh, a portion of the actual pardon from our guests. So I'm going to take this moment to read the, uh, the, the pardon. And this is different because you are the first guest that has a, a presidential pardon. All of our previous guests have gotten gubernatorial uh, uh, pardons. So... Um, what was that? <laughs> now I'm gonna be playing with stuff. We had to clap, man. The first <laughs> ever presidential pardon. Yes, okay. Give him a round of applause. The first presidential. I'm the first woman. It's a lot of. I'm first. telling you, man. Hey, 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 hey. yeah, you know. You get all of them. We gonna press all the buttons. Let's right. make it happen. Uh, your pardon reads: Donald, from Donald J. Trump, President of the United States of America, to all. To whom these presents shall come, greetings. Be it known that this day I, Donald J. Trump, President of the United States, pursuant to my powers under Article 2, Section 2, Clause 1 of the Constitution, have granted unto Sarita Rashida Stodd, also known as Sarita Stodd Martin, a full and unconditional pardon for her conviction in the United States District Court for the Eastern District of Texas on the indictment charging violation of Section 844H, Title 18, United States Code, for which she was sentenced on July 24, 2000, to 120 months imprisonment, three years, 
supervised released $1,934,169.31 restitution and a $100 special assessment. Don't man, make sure you don't leave off that 31 cents. 31 cents, you know, 31 yeah. cent. but yo, yo, oh, wait, look, we, we got to throw the clap in there again, man. You know, this is uh, it, it first and foremost, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, this is a, a tremendous, uh, for those that don't even understand, like we talk about, I talk about my gubernatorial pardon, um, but a presidential pardon is, is, is a step above. That's, that's a different, that's a different animal, a different, a different type of, uh, tip, different type of process as, as many people would realize, you know, can be, when you read them, usually ours, the governor ones are super long, yeah, but the presidential straight, ones are like, point. they straight to the point, like, yo, you pardoned. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, you know, this is uh, this I I think this will we'll be able to really dive deep and and we want to dive into some things. But I'm gonna kick it over to Cam Beats. We always have a one question that we ask every guest, uh, just to kind of start setting some context. So go ahead and uh, kick that question off. So um, after reading your 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 pardon, it says that you were in prison for 120 months. Um, upon your release, maybe you can re rewind back to that day. What was the most significant thing that you bought when you were released from prison? <laughs> so my pardon came way after, you know, my release. I was released in 2009. I received my pardon in 2020. Yeah, so we, we're looking at so, right when you got released in 2009. Right. Yep. Right. Right. So the first stop that I made, crazy as this sound, is McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> so we drove back from the prison to New Orleans. So I was released from Tallahassee, um, a facility in Tallahassee for women. So it's about a five-hour drive. So my best friend, my mom and my sister came to pick me up. They sent me, you know, some clothes. So I have on like, I don't know, four-inch heels. I hadn't wore heels in 10 years. Some jeans, jacket to match the heels. You know, I'm ready to go. And they're like, Are you as you about to go out the club? <laughs> listen, he was like, I'm back. Listen, the nerve, it was like purple leather boots and purple leather jacket with a black sweater and some jeans. It was clean, you know, but I was like, You're going to the halfway house. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, What do you want to eat? And all I kept thinking was about French fries from McDonald's. I had not had, you know, fast food or whatever. And I was like, I used to get a quarter pounder. So let me get a quarter pounder because that's what I know. But it was all about the French fries mm -hmm. from McDonald's. That's all I wanted. I was like, I need to see the golden arches <laughs> and I need some hot fries. That's what I wanted. <laughs> so the the variety of things that that, that you're the first, obviously, that says uh, that said McDonald's, and it's not as strange because that's the reason why we want to kick it off that way. Because what it kind of puts us in a frame of mind of what you're thinking about when you get out, like what what you need to get. One person was like, I had to get a Reese cup. Yeah, I need to get me a Reese cup. <laughs> whatever for whatever reason, that was important. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It, it, it's, it seems insane, you know, to to our listeners. That, that seems insignificant, right? And that's why we ask the question is, they think that's insignificant, like McDonald's, but we show what the significance is to us who've been in incarcerated. We're, we're thinking about, like you said, it was like, I just need some fries. Like, I'm, I, I got to have me some fries. 
Um, so that's well, I, knew I wasn't gonna get the real food till I got to New Orleans, you know. So this is true, right? This, right, this right, true. right. Okay, so how about this? Because New Orleans is known uniquely for its cuisine, I know that was a, kind of a, a a short stop for you to get to McDonald's. What was the first thing you got when you got? What would you feed in for when you got to New Orleans? So I had like a whole plan when I got to New Orleans, right? I, know, I, know, I, could, I could tell. <laughs> I didn't even know that like Katrina, like things were not back running or like what didn't return because uh -uh. I got back to New Orleans post Katrina. So Katrina happened in 2005. I got out 2009. So it's four years. So I had no concept of like things still not being the way that they were. Mm -hmm. So there was this gas station called Triangle Deli. And it's a thing in Louisiana where gas stations sell like food. Yep. All throughout Louisiana, right? Yep. So I wanted a stuffed bell pepper from Triangle Deli because Triangle Deli had the big stuffed bell pepper. So it was like the big old bell peppers, like really, really high and just the top of cut off and they stuffed. So like I wanted a stuffed bell pepper. I wanted me some ball crawfish and I wanted a glazed donut from McKenzie's. That was the three things that I wanted. Got to New Orleans, McKenzie's no longer existed. Triangle Deli hadn't reopened, and they only had one place that I could go and get a ball crawfish from, and it was like really far away from where I normally get them from. So I oh, did wow. get my crawfish, but I had to wait for the tri Triangle Deli eventually came back. But McKenzie's still, you know, it's just an afterthought. So Dang. I think, you know, I was I was devastated about that, but that was my plan. That was the three things. So where were you during Katrina? Were you in Texas or you you in Florida? I was in Florida. You're I was in, in Tallahassee. So I did my last five years of my sentence in Florida. I got so the federal system there aren't. Um, can y'all? Well, I don't know what happened just then, but this, in um, the federal system there aren't a lot of prisons for women. So. I'm sorry, go ahead. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. So there aren't a lot of prisons for women um, in a federal system. So there actually were only four at the time that I was incarcerated. One was in Connecticut, one was in Texas, one was in Texas, and then one was in Florida. Mm -hmm. So um, was, the, uh, was the prison in Florida affected by Katrina? No, it wasn't affected by Katrina in the sense of like physical damage, but the phone lines that supported the phones in the prison mm -hmm. ran through New Orleans. So for about two and a half weeks, three weeks, um, we were unable to use our phone system oh, wow. in Tallahassee. So Tallahassee is the closest federal prison for people from New Orleans. So there are multiple people on the compound from New Orleans that didn't have any contact with their family to know if they were safe, if they were dead, they were alive. Wow. The only thing we could do was watch TV because you couldn't make no phone calls, oh. like not even just to New Orleans. You couldn't use the phones at all. So everybody from New Orleans, they would allow us to stand in lines and make a phone call like once a day through the chapel because their landline was working. That had to be hard. That'd be hard. You know what, man? You know what's it's it's funny when I always talk about if you remember, I've, I've talked about it in my episode and, and subsequent episodes. Many times people think the hardest part of prison is it's physical. But I always talk about actually the hardest part of prison is the mental part mm -hmm. of it. 
right? And this is a perfect example. Like I, I talked about when my parents used to come visit me, I never knew if on the way home, they driving two hours home, if something happened to them and I'd never see them again, right? Mm-hmm. So that mental part of it, right? Not being able, imagine this, this catastrophic disaster happening mm-hmm. and you can't call and feel comfortable knowing that your loved ones are safe. Like that's that right there. I don't think anybody would ever understand because most people, even if they're free. So say somebody lived in Tallahassee and their family lived in New Orleans and they couldn't get a hold of them. They could jump in their car and drive over there. Right. When you're in prison, you, you ain't doing nothing. You just well, I've been to add on the fact mentally that you, you said you can only see on TV. And exactly. what, we, what we were fed on TV was the worst case scenarios of every situation from New Orleans. But even like the compassion that was lacking from people that were like guards or, you know, tasked to like secure you or keep you under correctional control. Right. I remember a captain. And it's so crazy because it was a black woman. We were all at mainline and we were asking like questions. Did they have any information? Had they heard anything? And she like singled me out. She was like, well, your mom is up here. So like some families, they um, had to leave, right? So evacuated. They evacuated to Tallahassee. Some families got stuck. Like I remember one woman that was there, her husband and two kids evacuated to Tallahassee. And ended up having to stay because they couldn't go back home. Like everything they had was destroyed. Mm. So he's bringing the kids there for her to comb their hair and visitation. Like literally he is living in the car with the kids because they evacuated here and didn't have like any support or help. But I remember the captain telling me, oh, well, your mom is here. So why are you in line? I'm like, Like, well, first of all, I already know what you was thinking. <laughs> my mom and dad are separated, they're not together, they're divorced. So, just because my mom is here, I shouldn't care about like nobody else. my family, I shouldn't be concerned about my grandparents, my sister, like anybody. I should only be worried, I should be fine because my mom is mm-hmm. here, mm-hmm. like, I have no other part of my family. And for me, that was like such a crazy comment. And I think, like, once I responded. She probably heard herself or thought about it. I don't know, but it was like the craziest shit to me because I was just like, yeah, yeah, that, that uh-huh. say, yeah, that's saying saying foolish stuff like that. You know, it's it's funny when we talk about prison. So many people forget, like when they're in there working or when you know they forget that they're human beings. And I think that's that's probably one of the toughest things. And and that's something we talk about a lot. And I think mm. you know. uh can you know when we talk about it is sometimes it's hard for him to grasp that right because you just know that we treat people as people but a lot of times in prison we're not treated as people we're treated as a a, a number what our number is and that's just what it is so this is a, this is another perfect example of that of like saying I, something that's like borderline insensitive like why why would i not be worried about my people but i often talk about too i think it's a little bit more than like being as casual as like referring to somebody as a number. I tell people like, if you're digging deep and you're looking into like the systematic and systemic approaches to oppression and dehumanization that exists, I tell people all the time, I was like, for 10 years, I never heard my first name, right? So when I got out and somebody said Sarita, I didn't even respond to it because I had been disconnected from the name that was given to me at birth by my parents. to say like who I am, right? And 
the dehumanization and the intentionality of disconnecting you from your birth name and how you are, um, how you identify in the world is like really intentional. Like it's a part of the dehumanization and the the things that are set in place for people not to treat you like a human being because you're not even referred to by your birth name. So that essentially is like the most effective way to wipe away your humanity and replace it with a tag or a number in the same way that you do cattle or animals or, you know, whatever it may be, anything that you tag and you treat as like not human, the easiest way is to take your name from you. You know, and if you don't have an association with your name any longer, like who are you? Well, that was demonstrated from the from roots, from the whole yep. Toby yep. and the slavery uh, thing. Like, hey, I'm going to take you. You are now who you are. You who I tell you who you are. You know, I got that hoodie too, right? I rocked that hoodie to a recent uh, uh, Germantown school board. Uh, you know, that's that's a sore subject conversation right here. But uh, I rocked uh, my Toby with the Toby crossed out Kuta Kente under it. Uh, when I went up and my wife looked at me like, why you got that sweater on? So, you know, it, hey, this is what I do. This, 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 I'm going to let these folks know. <laughs> this is what we rock. But now I, I think that's, you know, as you said, here in Wisconsin, it was inmate Johnson, right? Or inmate, you know, uh, 305178, you know, depending on where I was at. But most like on the, on the yard or anywhere else, the, the inmate Johnson, right? And you're right. No one calls your first Which name. Which is funny because the system in prison, it's the same as in school. I have a student ID number, <laughs> but nobody's calling me by that number. And you probably I, don't even know what it is. I don't know what it is. I, you know, it got, I'll go log in. Like, what the hell is my number? But, if you, but like, if you think about it, right, I talk about this too sometimes. I talk about like how all systems were created in Benjamin Franklin's living room prior to him becoming an abolitionist, right? <laughs> so the oldest, one of the oldest educational universities, the oldest prison, the oldest hospital, was all created in that Pennsylvania living room by these white men that were in the room prior to them believing that slavery was incorrect. Mm -hmm. That's why when we talk about prisons and hospitals and educational institutions, it looks like they all had the same architect. They only had that one group of cinder block mm -hmm. that they use with the linoleum floors or whatever, the color schemes and all. No matter where you are, they resemble, and that's like intentional because they were designed for a specific group of people mm. with like no inclusivity involved, like nothing. And when you think about it on the flip side of like systems of oppression, they mimic those systems that were created in that room, but in a way in which it takes away the humanity from the people that aren't able to access education, hospitals, and like jails. Like people think like, Oh, jails are like like a tool of oppression and all that. But it's like back in the day, slaves couldn't even go to the prison where the white men went either. They we couldn't go anywhere. <laughs> but they went. So we weren't even kept in prisons. We were kept in cages outside, animals, you know, that type of stuff. So when you even think about it on those terms and in that concept, it's like everything was created by the same group of individuals mm -hmm. to like keep a particular population of folks oppressed and like the systems that we have in place today do the same thing, you know? So, hey, I told you. I told you she was going to be one of our best yeah. guests. I'm just yeah. saying. Our, our, we, are, <laughs> we ain't got into the question, too. I know, I, know, <laughs> I, I, know this, I know she tapping into your education side. Your, yeah, uh, I, was you about to, I was about to go there with you. <laughs> and I'm just going to say it and we're going to move on to the next question. Because you said that. 
going back all the way to that, I, I say that the, the, the system of education is corrupt now at this point because we also have gone through a three-year pandemic and changed yeah, yeah. education to uh, to fix the to, to kind of offset. I mean, we weren't ready for it, but to kind of accommodate the fact that we had this pandemic going on. And as soon as this is over, over, we go right back to the old ass system again. We ain't yeah. we ain't even change we ain't changed yeah. it. So we ain't ready for it to ha- we, if it happened again, we're gonna be scrambling again trying to do the same thing. This is ridiculous. So and we know and we know that there's a direct correlation across this country between the education system and prison. We know that, right? Mm-hmm. There's a direct correlation of, of the prison pipeline. We know that. We we know it exists, and the pandemic exacerbated it, it made it worse because now you're gonna have this gap in there where individuals really did struggle and they, you know, whether they dropped out, whether they're still struggling. So there's this, this gap that is now existing where you probably will see an influx at a certain time of individuals going back to prison. We've seen the numbers reduce in some places and maybe, uh, you know, across the country overall, but you're going to see communities who didn't have access. There's so many communities, whether black or brown or rural communities that didn't have access to broadband. Well, the, the, the fact of the matter is that it was, proof that you don't have to be in school all damn day true you don't that's have true, to be too. in school to from eight to four that's we true, can be too. done at noon true like who's who's useful afternoon after you eat lunch <laughs> after you eat who is useful you would take a nap <laughs> say man you want to take a siesta you gotta move down to mexico man. i'm just Where, saying you know, like, other, hey other, i'm down i'm ready to move across the, across the world <laughs> have actually modified their education system but we're gonna stay the same we're gonna take summers off but I, I think, too, like, it's about regionally, like, where you're situated, right? Like, that's not our story in the South, specifically in New Orleans. Somewhere that after Katrina, like, things that people don't talk about is that we don't have public schools anymore in New Orleans, right? Mm-hmm. New Orleans, after Katrina, became 100% charter. So when you think about that... I, in drove, by, I drove by the school board down there. It's weeds and shit growing all around the damn school board. <laughs> because well, now they just moved the charter school system back underneath the school board. That happened about three years ago. Okay. But each charter school has its own board and uh, mm-hmm. deals with its charter accordingly, like separately. So there's no consistency. Um, and for us, what COVID did was like allow these schools to continue not to provide quality education or making sure that students have what they need. Louisiana already had one of the highest rates of like functionally um, illiterate people. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're looking at it's the state that incarcerates the most people per capita than anywhere in the world, you have the highest crime rates. The education is horrible. Um, you know that the only thing that's going to continue to happen is that, you know, the prison population is going to continue to like grow. There was just a study I was looking at the other day that talked about how um, white kids on a sixth grade level in the state were reading at a sixth grade level majority or average, but like black kids were reading at a third grade level mm-hmm. in the sixth grade. And it wasn't even like tied to like where you're located, where you, it was just an average, just, just like these statistics as a whole, mm-hmm. black versus white, you know? Wow. And uh, it was just, it was like eye-opening to just say like, you know, people talk about things and proven. And I think a lot of times people generalize and say, oh, you know, as a whole, 
the country is getting better as a whole. We're seeing these things on an uptake. But if you break it down regionally, you'll see that some places in the world are getting extremely better, higher, Mm -hmm. more equipped access, which has been historical, right? And some places it's like going in the opposite direction, Mm -hmm. which is the South, which historically correlates with, you know, what has always been the case. So if if we're thinking about that, like I want to, I want to take it back, right? Because you're you're talking about the system now, so we're thinking, you know, we go back almost to 2000, so 24 years ago, right? Almost 25 years ago. Or uh, um, think about like when you, you, you know, you were a teenager, right? Just like I was 17 when I went to prison. You were 19. Like, can you take us back to that time and thinking about? Because I know a little bit of your story because I've I've heard you talk uh, at at our. Um, for JFF at the horizons, I heard you talk about, you know, where you come from and you, you, you come from some, uh, you come from some very rich, uh, rich and uh, rich, some very, uh, enriched, uh, folks, um, you know, where most people think that everybody that goes to prison comes from, you know, we're from the hood or, you know, we're, 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 we're destitute, we're in poverty. Um, but I know, I know a little bit of your story of what you shared. So I'd love for you to kind of talk about that and then what led up um, and for whatever, whatever, as much as you're comfortable with, uh, what led up, you know, really to, to getting into some trouble at 19? Well, yeah, I, you know, I share, you know, pretty publicly that I went to prison at the age of 19, but when I went to prison, I had a full scholarship to Xavier university in physics and engineering. My mom was a judge. My dad was a supervisor at an oil refinery. Uh, the first time I went to Europe, I was nine. I, <laughs> Used to go skiing. I had a Benz at 15. So when you think about like the socioeconomic. Wait, hold on. You had a Benz <laughs> at 15. Like, uh, look, all the other stuff is nice. You had a Benz at 15. <laughs> oh, no, we didn't froze up. She didn't froze. Can you still hear us, Sarita? Oh, there we go. It's coming back. We can see you now. Uh oh. We can't hear you, though. Hold on one second. Oh, it's your your mic's not connected. Can y'all hear me? Yeah, we can we hear go. you now. Okay. So we, we we sorry we 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 didn't hear anything you said, but I'm sure it was dynamic. So we can repeat it. <laughs> oh no, well, I was saying that you know normally the socioeconomic backgrounds. They said I lost my camera again, y'all. I'm sorry. You good? Just you can keep on going. It'll probably come back in. Okay. So um, the socioeconomic backgrounds that are associated with being in prison was not my story. You know, like financially, I came from a great situation, two-parent household, um, both parents like working. You know, I just, I always tell people like I came from a family of first. Like my mom was the first black attorney licensed in the parish where we woman where we were. She was the first black woman to work in Winn-Dixie. You know, my grandfather was the first black man in New Orleans with the power to arrest people. He worked undercover for the FBI as a black man, just all of these things. And like, I still found myself in prison. And I think what we don't like talk about or really lift up is that trauma leads us there, the experiences Mm -hmm. that we have, the things that we've been through as people, individuals. So at a very young age, I was exposed to like a lot of physical abuse. 
Um, and then at the age of 16, I was sexually assaulted. So by the time that I was 19, um, mm -hmm. I was angry. I was upset. Um, you know, all of the things. And that was just like a recipe for disaster. So I went to the military um, <laughs> after my first year of school. And I was like, somebody should have told me that like a person who's already diagnosed with PTSD has no business going to the military. <laughs> but you know, I didn't have that conversation with anybody prior to going. Like, y'all ain't tell me about this. Yeah, they didn't tell me that. So by the time I um, got to um, boot camp and finished boot camp, you know, it was just, I was a, a live wire. Well, that's where you're stationed in Texas? So I actually was stationed in Great Lakes. Um, oh, you up here stationed up here by us? Just yeah, I was in Great Lakes. Yeah, yeah, I was you, in you Great Lakes. You know what Lake. Great Lakes is, Tommy? Come on, my brother. I need you to get your geography together, my brother. You I know we're near the Great Lakes. I, but I, don't, know, <laughs> I don't know. You drive past it every time you go to Chicago. Uh, it's right by Great America. Oh, okay. Yes, yeah, just south of Great, like literally just south of Great. It's like Waukegan. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's yeah. exactly yeah. where well, I was in Waukegan. Okay. Mm -hmm. I know Waukegan. I don't know Great Lakes. <laughs> Sorry. Well, sorry. where the no, where the base is at is actually called Great Lakes, but it's okay. really situated in it's Waukegan. In Waukegan. So gotcha. It's like right around Waukegan. Okay. So um, yeah. By the time I graduated boot camp, like I said, I was just like a live wire, you know. Um, but it really was steeped and stemmed in like the levels of trauma and abuse that I had endured, and just had like really never dealt with it, you know. No doubt, and I think that's the story. Many when we've talked, uh, the, the folks we've had on, it's never just this like, hey, today I'm just going to wake up and commit a crime. Uh, there's things that happen. There's things that happen to us, all types of different trauma. You know, I talk about mine was my parents were getting divorced. Right. And I'm looking like if y'all don't love each other, y'all must not love me. You know, a couple other people have come on and talk about, uh, you know, whether it was selling drugs, that was just the life they had to live. Right. That's how they grew up. And I think many times, once again, there's that disassociation of being a human being. Folks don't understand that. They don't understand that something happened to cause us to inflict pain or inflict damage or something on someone else or something. Um, it wasn't just we woke up one morning and said, let's just go commit a crime. Um, so they don't understand that it's black people. But I mean, they understand it for other people. Oh, oh for 100 percent. What 100 percent. You know this. Hey, you know, we, especially in your case, I'm sure they really looked like Puh. What do you mean? I can't believe it. You, you, why, why would you commit a crime? There's no reason you should commit a crime, right? They don't, there's no correlation to what can cause, you know, individuals to feel the way they feel, uh, or there's no care. I should say not, there's a correlation, but there's no care in the world. Would you have Tommy? You was about to jump in. I was going to jump in. I'm going to try to figure out how you ended up in Tyler, Texas, which, um, <laughs> is, is in the stomping grounds of Grambling near is 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 outside it's outside of uh it's outside of uh of Dallas is it between Dallas and Shreveport I believe somewhere somewhere in that area yeah it's East Texas it's similar so it's like close I think closer probably to Texarkana you know the right is so yeah it's mm -hmm. close it's close to the border of Louisiana over there yes. so I think, I think yes. that's north of Shreveport I believe but um so how how did you end up in Tyler Texas and and what what happened there. So my one of my co-defendants, um, we were actually in the military together. So mm -hmm. she and I were roommates. She was from Henderson, Texas, which is right outside of Tyler. Um, the reason we were in Tyler was because that's where 
the federal jail was. So that's actually where we were arrested. Mm-hmm. But the crime was actually committed in Longview. Okay. So okay, okay. So Longview, I I I want to say I've been there. I think I caught a train there. <laughs> yeah. So it's Great County, you know, it's in Longview. So um, yeah. but the federal holding facilities and the court and all of that is actually located in Tyler for that area. I'm sorry, it's not Longview. I was in Marshall. Marshall was outside of Longview. Gotcha. Okay. That's where the train you you, you can actually take a train. That's where the amateur you get the Amtrak there. Oh, that's what's up. Yeah. It's a long ride. Yeah. <laughs> it was. Okay, so the, you say you were in, in uh in Longview, Texas, mm-hmm. where, where the crime was committed. Um, can you take us back to that 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 day of what what took place? So it probably was like a combination of things. So like um pretty much financially, I had been taking care of myself for a while, you know, ever since I was in um Xavier. So, you know, you have this idea of like the money that your parents have or things that go on as you're growing up. <laughs> but like my parents um were very clear that their money is their money and I don't have any. <laughs> oh, we lost we lost you there for a second, Sarita. It's, it's loading. I don't think she can hear us. Well, as it's loading, you know, we can we can kind of talk about like I think this is a perfect example of which is why I say she's she's the perfect guest. Mm-hmm. This this ideology of where people grow up and where they come from that leads them to prison. She's she's highlighting she's, she's, for she's us from the black elite. Correct. Literally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And 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 that means that we're still not immune. You know, even black elite are not immune from the the woes of the world mm-hmm. when it comes to uh, dealing with prison. So it's uh it's dynamic to think about. I mean it's it, it it's 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 dynamic to think and oh we lost her. She probably gonna have to sign back in. Mm-hmm. You know, but I, I, I think for me, you know, some of the questions that as we talk about and, and continue in the conversation, like I really want to kind of dive into, you know, coming from that then going to prison, how do you end up coming back into that, right? Because she's done some fantastic things that I, I'd really love for her to talk about when she comes back on. Uh, but she's done some great work. Mm-hmm. So how do you come back from that? Because most people can't, right? You fall, that fall from grace. And it is essentially, even if you're just a teenager, how do you return? How do you come back from that? Um, right. Well, I mean, thinking through her upbringing, and seeing what her resume reads and how her life has, you know, her pivot has taken uh, a whole different perspective of where she came from. Well, not even from where she came from, what, where she took a turn. It's obvious that the support around her started to, it started to actually catch up with mm-hmm. her, 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 her mentality started to catch up with what her surroundings actually supported. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I mean, man, she, she's done some phenomenal things. And you can tell that she's very, very uh, well read based off of just her like, her common conversation right here um, and making a connection. So it's um, hopefully we get her back uh, pretty soon. So definitely, I, I think um, you know once we get her back here, she's having a, few, a little bit of internet trouble, which is all good. Uh, once she gets back, we can definitely dive in a little mm-hmm. bit more into into the conversation. Yes. So, yeah, my parents' money was my parents' money. So, for me, 
um, I think it was about 10th grade. I came to the realization that I wanted certain things. My parents wouldn't buy certain things. So I started dating guys that would give me what I wanted or I got a job and I started working to like buy the things that I wanted. Um, it was just different ways of like me dealing with not being able to like get what I wanted as a teenager, mm -hmm. you know, in school. Um, so by the time I got to the military, I was pretty much like taking care of myself. So my car, my car insurance, you know, I just was already established, um, in a way where I was responsible for certain things. I also didn't do my due diligence to check to see what I would be getting paid when I joined the military. <laughs> so this was underneath the Clinton administration. I think I was making $410 every two weeks. Um, and my car insurance probably was like $500, you know, something crazy <laughs> like that. So, you know, didn't plan that out well. So I tried to get another job while I was in the military, but because my A school was so intense, they wouldn't let me get a job. So in my 19 year old mind, I go back to what I know, the streets, people yep. that I deal with in the streets. I never was the type of person who stood on the corner and sell drugs, but I was always the person who was the middleman for whatever. Had a lot of relationships, could connect people, and I used to make money being a middleman between a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. So that's how we ended up going back to Tyler. We were supposed to be going to Tyler to pick up some stuff, get some cars, bring them to the chop shop. My goal was to make enough money to hold me through the rest of my schooling so that I didn't have to lose anything. So I, I remember going to my superiors and like, hey, listen, if I don't get another job, I'm gonna lose everything that I have. And them saying, it doesn't matter, we'll help you to get everything back. And I, you know, I was like, <laughs> nah, I ain't trying to do that, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, nah, uh, I don't wanna hear you're gonna help me get it back, which then signifies that I've lost it. I need to right. make sure right. I, I sustain it. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah so, we ended up, I ended up getting in trouble though for the actual taking the cars from the car dealership and bringing the cars to the chop shop like in the midst of taking the cars one of my co-defendants who also happened to be from the area in which we sold the cars um said he thought his face was on the camera and you know all these things and i was like the best way to cover up evidence is like making sure that they don't have any. So we burnt the building down, you know, but I, I was unprepared for the federal system and the conspiracy charges because they don't even need evidence for conspiracy. Oh, really? Wow. They, I, I didn't know so, that. So they can just come up with a conspiracy and that's, that's, that's just what it is. That's what it is. So, you know, the conspiracy charges were created back around like mob times and, you know, when they were trying to get people about like what they said. So in the 1994 crime bill is when they actually intensified it, where they could charge people with like ghost drugs or amounts of um, bodies or different crimes that they could charge them with was through conspiracy because in a conspiracy conviction, all you need is two or more people to mm. say that you did a thing and you're guilty of that thing. So a lot of people would testify against you or, you know, plea out for a testimony against you. Um, and that is how their conviction rate was 
99% and all of the mm. things because if they didn't have evidence, like in my crime, there was no physical evidence, no eyewitnesses, there was nothing, fibers, nothing to tie us to the scene of the crime. But two people said that we did it and that's how we ended up being charged. And conspiracy holds mandatory minimums as well. So even though like the crime of arson in the federal system may only hold two to three years, the conspiracy charge held 10. So that's how we ended up with conspiracy and a mandatory minimum. Yeah, those mandatory minimums are rough. When you're thinking about in the federal system, um, it's almost like now here in Wisconsin with truth and sentencing, mm -hmm. where what you get is what you serve, right? But the mandatory minimums, <clears throat> just for you, uh, canned. So you think about the charge that you have, like it's it literally is mandatory. If it's two years, that's the least you can get. So you can get more, but you know that if you're convicted of this crime, that is the least that you can get. So yeah, it 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 messes you up, you know, that that whole idea. It's it's almost the opposite of like the max. Like when I was committing armed robberies, the max was 40 years for each armed robbery, right? There was no minimum. But in this, as she's talking about the mandatory minimums, there's already an established minimum that you're gonna get. And when it's conspiracy, it's 10 years. But that's not different state to state. Uh, I don't so know is, how this is federal. So this was federal. Yeah, so, so the federal is the same everywhere. Yeah, so, you know. yeah, correct. So the federal system has like a federal guidelines. Um, it tells you, you get a point system. If you fall into this point, this is your range mm -hmm. and all of that. But if your crime it, um, has a mandatory minimum attached to it, none of that even matters. So even though like I was at the lowest point of the point table, I had never had a conviction prior to um, the crime that I ended up being convicted of, that code that was right in my pardon was actually use of fire to commit a felony. Um, and the mandatory minimum was 10 years for that crime. But the way that they forced me to plead out to that particular statute was that I had four conspiracy counts on my indictment. So, um, and each conspiracy had a different mandatory minimum. Jeez. So what? So what made this uh, a federal crime? Was it the arson or the transporting the vehicles? No, it was actually taking the cars. Yeah, transporting the vehicles over state lines, and gotcha. then um, they called an ATF to investigate the fire. So I don't know if I told you before my. Um, major when I went to college, it was like physics and engineering. I had always been um, <laughs> scientifically inclined, <laughs> so you know, I didn't just like have a regular fire, you know, I kind of like built a line for the propane tank and it kind of like exploded. You know, I don't know what really happens, but <laughs> for the most part, the fire that's some 18 like, so shit right there, right? It could be a regular fire. <laughs> Uh, it was like they're doing a, uh, the Italian job. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. That's yes. Dope. But I don't know if you ever saw. I don't know if you ever saw Gone in sixty seconds before with like yes. Nicolas Cage. Mm -hmm. So that movie came out after us. Cash. Oh, so that's that's more of the the, the season of what you were doing. <laughs> Y'all were the no, inspiration. Not even, not even gonna, 
No, not even gonna say credit for that. I was just trying to give you a little context. <laughs> well, I've already no, got it. Good. I already got it uh, in my my brain. <laughs> you, 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 I got the whole Mission Impossible music playing behind you and everything. <laughs> you putting together stuff like uh, <laughs> like uh, what's dude's name from uh, Tom Cruise? My, my daughter. My daughter is like. No, it was Nicolas Cage. No, I was thinking of the other uh, other show, like MacGyver. I'm oh, MacGyver, like, MacGyver, yeah, oh, MacGyver. That's what, yeah, there it is. Making explosives out of gum, and uh, <laughs> that's Rita right there. You right. said, you know. So, 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 so. I was saying, y'all see moving. That's my daughter. Okay. Oh no, you all good? No, I, I heard. I, <laughs> we, we heard her, but I didn't. See, I didn't see her. So, hello. <laughs> so, um. So you are you're convicted. So you're convicted. You're in, you're uh, incarcerated. Um, going going to the hey, how you doing? Welcome to the Pardon Me podcast. Hey, you the first child. <laughs> the first child. Congratulations. <laughs> so I was I was expediting your uh your prison time, but but so you did all 120 months. I'm assuming you did all. I did actually. Um, I want to say nine years and two months, one to ten years, because 120 months. So I did um probably ten months short of 120, so right at 110. Okay. Okay. Um, nice. So. Um, when you were uh released from prison we talked about like what your first purchase was um do you what was your first job that you had once you were released from prison like when you came out and um after you had your mcdonald's and your boiled boiled crawfish (laughs) ethan come get your sister i'm on this Podcast. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Hey, this is what you always tell me, Tommy. Don't be trying to be professional, right? You like, no, nah, don't be, don't be, nah, don't be all this, buttoned up. No, you just let it roll. This, this, this is what we do. Just podcast. let it roll. This is what we do. So this also is what comes along with y'all saying y'all first women guess sometimes, you know, the kids, they gonna make an appeal. <laughs> <laughs> this has ne- never never been an issue <laughs> I love it yeah my son is 12 he's supposed to be watching his sister but of course he's playing with her even more so no of course of course um so I think my my first job when I got out was as a hostess um in a restaurant so I think like there are places that are extremely friendly to People who are being recently released where they don't ask a lot of questions. So those probably were my first jobs, the job as a hostess. Um, and I also ended up working in the construction industry um, because that's also a job that's friendly with individuals who are being recently released from prison. They don't really ask questions about probation, parole. You're able to see your probation officers. And this is this is in, in New Orleans. So yes, but just for context, um, New Orleans, like I live outside. I'm from outside of New Orleans, so I was in the halfway house in New Orleans. But I had a lot of connections. So like 
what is called the river parishes. So it's the parishes that are right along the river. Mm -hmm. um, I grew up in a small parish called St. James Parish. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot out there, I don't know if y'all familiar with, like my mom is from St. John Parish, which is like Cancer Alley is what the term is. You said cancer, like, cancer St. John's is Cancer Parish. That's what Cancer you're Alley. Cancer Alley. Cancer Alley. Yeah. So if you like do a search on it, it's known the rates of like people who develop cancer from that area is extremely high. It's like an anomaly, but it's because mm -hmm. there are so many refineries and they have been going unchecked for so long. But those wow. are industries that are really easy to like get into and work in. Yeah, because, you know, that's when when you ask about the first job, the first thing I think about, like, is you you like you were accomplished. Right. You you went to school. You you were doing these things. You were in college. Like I was interested, too, to see what your first job was, uh, because for me, I would think that, you know, the ability to lean back into that experience that you have, because it's never going to go anywhere, um, would be an opportunity for you. But I think that that kind of leads into some of the other things. Right. We're at UNO, University of New Orleans. You know, I read about how you applied to go to school there. So when we think about the job, I tie that directly to when you applied to go to school and you checked uh, basically, yes, that, that you've been convicted of felony or whatever, right? And they didn't accept you. But then you you turned around and you submitted it again and didn't check it. And they accepted you. And I think I was, I mean, Tommy, we're talking before, the, before you came on earlier. And he was like, man, damn, being honest just being honest that's what you get for being honest right you be honest and and people want to dictate what happens but then you go on there and you you don't check it and you get provisionally accepted you know that's just it's insane and i think that's the that's the the epitome of the challenges that are consistently faced by individuals across this country uh, when they get out of prison is even if they have the skill you're very well skilled and you you were very prepared so you, I mean, you were in college, right? Like the, these things, and you were still judged based off of a mistake and a decision you made at as a teenager. Uh, I think I think it's just, it's sad, right? As I always talk about, it's just sad that these things that we do carry, you know, the rest of our life. Yeah, and I think that that's the thing that like kids or people who commit a crime are like the least prepared for. It's like yes. making a split second decision or choice um and sometimes it's not a choice right sometimes it's not a decision sometimes it happens to you you know i can't tell you how many times i've talked to people who we talk about like the night of or the day that something happened and they just was like this is something that happened to me like i don't even know if I participated or if I consciously made a choice or even had an opportunity where I could have made a different decision, you know, like crimes that are associated with women are often like survival crimes, you know? So it's also about like choosing between surviving, taking care of your kids or not. Like that's right. the hand that you're dealt, right? So even when you think about it on those terms, it's like, but that moment, that split second, 20 seconds of your life, you know, changes you forever, you know. So, so after, so after you did get enrolled in school and you you learned the the trick of <laughs> tweaking tweaking the truth a little bit, how did did that continue to be the trend to keep you from uh, keep you being employed? Because I, I'm so I'm assuming you worked through college as well, right? 
Well, no. So what was crazy was is that when I first got out, my plan was to go to school. Since that couldn't happen, I started working um, and I was waiting tables and, you know, um, working in the chemical industry. But then I met my son's father. We had got married um, and I was pregnant at the mm. time. So I couldn't go back into the chemical industry and mm. then waiting tables as a pregnant person is not really like an option. And then the service industry, I was in Memphis at the time because that's where I, I was traveling with the construction company. Mm-hmm. Um, the service industry in Memphis is not the service industry in New Orleans, right? right. So um, money that you're able to make and secure for yourself looks a lot real different. Yeah. So I, I got a job as like an account manager for um, AT&T switching customers over from residential sales to like the new UVerse system, but it was cold <laughs> called. It was 100% commission. So it was based on how many people you got to convert. So that's not sustainable. You know, you're outside, you're working, you're knocking doors. It's cold outside, you know, just different things. And like I mm-hmm. said, I was that found out I was pregnant. So that's when I actually made the decision to reapply to school after applying two years previously and just unchecking the box because by this time I knew that's exactly what it was, right? Mm. Um, And when I got into school, I did what I'm five months pregnant. I'm looking for a job. I was consistently searching for a job up until I was about eight months pregnant and could not get hired. So I'm pregnant. I'm formerly incarcerated. You know, I don't have a college degree like the options for work are like slim to none, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I took out my first student loan. Um, I was able to get scholarships because of grades that I transferred in with. Um, so my Pell Grants or, you know, the scholarships that I achieved helped to be money. By the time I got to my senior year in college, <laughs> I had only accumulated $14,000 in debt, right? I was on Section 8. I had food stamps. I had WIC. Mm-hmm. I had child care. I was going to school. I had Pell Grants. I got every scholarship that you could think um, <laughs> nice. for that you could get for a 30, you know, 32, 33-year-old woman. So when you, you know, as you thought about, um, like, we know, I talk about it before, we don't even know that a pardon is even a, a possibility um, here in Wisconsin. You have to be off of supervision for five years before you can even apply, uh, which is absolutely insane. You have to wait five years after you get off supervision. Who, and who knows how long you're going to serve on supervision. But w- when you became aware of it, what influenced you to go through the pardon process? And, and why did you want a pardon? So mine was strictly financial, right? Um, I also had that $1.9 million in restitution. So Mm -hmm. initially I had did a Soros fellowship and I started investigating like restitution specifically. And I started learning that there was over like $17 billion in uncollected restitution and how, you know, people just couldn't get it off their backs. And I had been paying it like in the federal system you begin to pay your restitution immediately. So the whole time I was in prison, I was paying my family the money that they sent in, they could take, or I started working and they would take half of my paycheck. Like 
I had been paying the restitution for 20 years, you know, by the time that I got the pardon. But the crazy thing about it is it's like an IRS debt. You can't file bankruptcy. You can't discharge yourself from it. Um, and it draws interest. Ooh. So when you think about that, it's like $1.9 million yes. interest on $1.9 million. Yes. Yes. Oh. Yes. So you got called it like the new life sentence. So it just became my life's mission to investigate how could I get from underneath this $1.9 million. So my co-defendant, her father passed away and immediately the federal government like filed an injunction like to make sure if she inherited anything that it could be taken. Oh. Um, the day I graduated from college, I got audited and they immediately raised my um, monthly contribution to the restitution. They had started garnishing my taxes. I mean, just all of the things it's like a ruthless undertaking of like we're gonna try to take everything from you and um before i paid a bill before i got anything that my children needed i had to pay the restitution first because mm. you could be sent back to jail for not complying like while you're on supervised release or parole but then like once you're off they'll put a lien on you you know um a judgment on your credit so I just began looking and what I uncovered was the only two ways to get off of the debt was is that the victim or family or state of the person that has been affected can say that they don't want money from you or you had to get a pardon. So that is how I became aware of the pardon process mm -hmm. and did not know how that would happen, right? Um, but I'm a firm believer in like God and he shows up and shows out all the time, right? So mm -hmm. I did the ban the box legislation here in Louisiana on college applications, made Louisiana the first state to pass <laughs> um, the legislation anywhere in the country. And what that did was brought attention of like, who is this formerly incarcerated black woman in the South passing legislation, right? So... <laughs> Who she thinks she is? Well, not even so much that, but I became like this anomaly, I guess, because people have yeah. a hard time passing legislation in the South, period, let alone we did it unanimously. And then people are talking about the experience and why it matters, right? So um, that parlayed me to working with the ACLU Smart Justice campaign on a few things. And then eventually I... Um, landed on the radar of Dream Corps. Um, they were trying to do the first step act under the Trump administration at that time. And they wanted formerly incarcerated people who had experience um, working in legislation or that could help advocate or whatever. And um, I fit that bill. So I was able to like begin to work as a policy analyst for them on the Dignity Act for Incarcerated Women, which then turned into the work on the First Step Act. So by working on that, that put me in proximity to the people that could like make my pardon happen, right? So I remember going to the White House the first time for the reentry summit. They had invited like formerly incarcerated people from everywhere to come in. And um, the then Secretary of Energy, Rick Perry, who was the governor mm -hmm. of Texas, um, he was sitting on the stage and he was like, 
you know, in Texas, we got it wrong. I thought about locking up everybody and throwing away the key and we destroyed a lot of young people's lives. And, you know, I was just like, he talking to me. Like I caught my charge in Texas. I was 19, you know? So my friend happened to be on the panel. She's a formerly incarcerated woman who does work. And she was in a green room. I was like, listen, you got to get me into the green room. And she was like, huh? I said, yeah, I, I just need to talk to Secretary Perry. Oh, good. So I made it back there to the back to him to um, kind of like talk to him. And I was like, hey, you know, Secretary Perry, like you talked about the young people whose lives y'all destroyed like in Texas and how you know that that was like the wrong thing to do or whatever. I was like, I'm one of those people. I was sentenced to 10 years in the state of Texas at the age of 19. I was like, and it has literally like changed my life. I was like, I was sentenced to 10 years in federal prison, 20 years in state prison, $1.9 million in restitution, all for the same thing. And he turned at that time, there was a woman named Brooke Rollins who was also out of Texas. She was coming on board, I'll never forget, in June of that year. I don't even remember what month it was, but I know June was a couple of months away and that Brooke would be taking over the Office of, uh, office of American Innovation, mm. which dealt with all of the criminal justice issues or whatever, you know, at that time. And he was like, Brooke, we have to get her a pardon. <laughs> that's it, literally what he said right there in front of you right there in front of me Brooke was like okay when I come in I'm gonna work with her whatever and literally Rick Perry left office I didn't talk to Brooke again um, and it was like three years almost three years had passed before um, the talks of part for me came up again I actually went through the process. I did my own pardon application. I reached out to multiple attorneys to like assist with the process. I think the cheapest I found was somebody wanted to charge me seventy thousand dollars. Good. Um, wait, wait, wait. To do the pause. To do the application, yeah. Seventy thousand dollars. Seventy grand. Like, like yeah. yeah, bro. I, I got 70,000. Yeah, just me. add that to the one point nine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just add that on. <laughs> what is wrong with folks? So, um, and at this time I'm working in the hospital, um, you know, because I, I mean, there's no way I could afford $70,000, but they're like, no, if you pay us to do the application, we'll guarantee it. We have inroads to administration and all oh, of man. that. Okay. And I was just like, now nah, let me just do my own application. Right. You know? We continue to work on the first step back. I'm constantly in DC, making relationships, talking to folks. And then I had an opportunity to bring Ben Watson. He was the tight end for the Saints at the time mm -hmm. into the White House because this was around the time with Colin Kaepernick and just like all of the things. And President Trump had made the comments around like F the NFL players and, you know, all of these different things. Mm -hmm. um, and I had met Ben completely like separate on a fluke, you know, and we end up. He ended up changing my life completely, totally, um, just meeting him. So I asked him, would he be open to having a conversation? And he said, yes. I walk in the room, and there's a, a black guy sitting there with Jared Kushner um, and a few other staffers. And what I did know at that time was this black man that was sitting in there. He was the highest-ranking um, black Republican in 
the White House. Mm. And he had went to college with my sister. <gasps> yeah, right. Listen, I'm telling you, the Lord. <laughs> Won't he do it? <laughs> no, won't he? So did, so so I walked, did he recognize you? No, I didn't. I had never met him because okay. mind you, when my sister was in college, I was in prison. Oh, got you. But me and my sister, I had the last name. My last name was Stye. And he said he went to Howard. And I was like, oh, my sister went to Howard. He was like, oh, my God, that's like not a common last name. Do you know Aspen? And I said, that's my baby sister. He was like, get out. No. You know, went through this whole thing. I'm like, we got to send our picture, you know, and all of this. But what ended up happening was now I had a connection, like accountability mm -hmm. to say, hey, how's my application looking? What else do y'all need for my application? And I knew that he was going to keep my name in the conversation. Um, and he was working directly for Brooke. So when I I was like, listen, I can come back in two weeks for a meeting. Will you be able to set up a meeting with Brooke? And he's like, sure, I'll do it. Set up the meeting with Brooke. I was back in two weeks. And I was like, you remember me? I was in the green room. And she was like, oh, yes. So they asked me for like things that I was doing. I told them about myself. I showed them pictures of my child. I just wanted them to like see all of the work that we've Humanize done. Humanize you. And yes. Mm -hmm. So I spent like so much time like letting them get to know me and the work that I was doing and then also of course like Jessica Jackson Sloan and Van Jones and the people that I was working with at Cup 50 they had then pushed for them to create like this pardon council or group where they would discuss names and recommendations of folks and try to um, decide mm -hmm. to pardon you know so many people with this group so it was people that were there who had received pardons, people who hadn't received pardons that were working in administration, like just different things. So I don't know if the date is on my pardon or not, but I actually received my pardon at 12 midnight and President Trump was out of office noon the next day. <laughs> like this last day in office? The last 12 hours. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow no there's no time on see you know and i know i know they do that a lot they do um the presidential pardons usually are in that last like one, at, at the end of their term or whenever you know they determine but i think when you're you're an outgoing president i think it, a lot of them happen during that last week but it happened dude at, this is it does midnight. Say 19th day of january in the year of our lord 2021 <laughs> Damn, that is crazy. <laughs> and he was out of office the twentieth. The twentieth, yes. That is crazy. But when I think about it, man, it, the fact that so I, I got to go back to to Rick Perry, right? Like, 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 what kind of foolishness was Dog on? He was like, "Hey, uh, we got you know, we got to get her a pardon," and then he bounced. But then he don't make sure that that's carried through, right? Three years. You said it was three years later. Like, you know what I'm saying? Did you lose faith in the whole, like, I'll be back in two weeks, set up a meeting thing? Because when you said that, I was like, uh, right. Uh, yeah. yeah. When I see it. I don't know. I just am the type of person that it was like, whether it took two weeks or four weeks, I knew I was going back. So I knew we were still like, working on like the first step act i knew i had access now i knew how to 
get to people I knew how to like say, oh, I'll be in DC and really don't have a meeting. That's the only one I'm coming for. You know what I'm saying? Like those things because I just knew that I needed that to change my experience of life at that time. Like my mom was getting older. I'm working with her to do like estate planning and figuring out how if something happens to her, they don't take her money to pay my debt. So her not being able to leave me anything in the will is going to my children, making my sister the executor of the estate. Just all of the things that you don't think about to try to like not get your family like involved like it's like they paid enough like why are they still being like punished and you know just all of the things but what i did know at that time was the part of the pardon process um where you receive relief from the financial part of the crime is called remission so in the federal system there's the pardon there's clemency um i'm sorry not clemency because this all falls under clemency commutation Commutation, so you can yes. get a commutation of your sentence. You can get a full presidential part, or you could receive remission. So remission had been around for about forty plus years. No woman had ever received remission ever in the history of remission. Myself wow. and another woman received it on the same day, and we were the first two and only mm. two women to ever receive remission. Which means it wipes away the debt. As the well monetary as monetary debt. All right. Wow. So let's talk about the fact that your sister was at Howard, right? She went to Howard University. Yeah. And right. and this this uh this high ranking Republican black man went to Howard. Like, what is the likelihood of that being the case that a black man goes to a historically black college and he's a high ranking Republican? Like. The fact that she had a really good relationship enough for him to remember her years they, down the line. They were really good friends. It was so crazy. And she said he was a Republican then. Like she met him. Like, uh-huh. As he ran. This is this is uh, an anomaly kind of like thing. Listen, but it's a series of anomalies, right? Yeah. A series. But yeah, like literally walked in and he knew her exactly who I was talking about. And before I got my pardon in January. So I don't know if you are familiar with like Mardi Gras, like you said you are, but in mm-hmm. DC they do like a Washington Mardi Gras. Okay. So the year before in 2019, I went to Washington Mardi Gras and I found him. I'm like, where are you at? We need to talk. We're connecting. And my sister was there. So I was like, look, here's Aspen. Like they talked and they reminisced. And, but it was literally like, He's like, no, submit your application. Everything is in. Make sure you send some more letters. Do all of the things. And it still was a year after that. Jeez. Before I the pardon. At oh. the last hour. So at that at that point, like I would just uh, this is all faith. This is all faith, <laughs> literally. <laughs> The fact that you knew, because this is literally like on TV where people were like on death row and they're like, they have to hurry up before the uh, the governor, like before midnight, before he's no longer in office kind of thing. Were you just, were you just waiting or did you just knew that was going to happen? So the crazy thing is, is that I had had my daughter September of the, you know, previous year that mm-hmm. I got pardoned. So when my phone rang at 12 o'clock, she was just born in November. 
So two months. So she's I'm literally sleeping when I can. Mm-hmm. So when the phone rang at midnight, I was just maybe an hour or two into sleep. Just those from the <laughs> I'm breastfeeding. I'm tired. You know all of the mm-hmm. things. So the first thing I thought when the phone rang was like, "Who in the hell is calling <laughs> at fucking midnight?" And I just went, that's literally what I said. Right. Yeah, I would probably so, say the same thing. I looked at the phone and Jessica's name was on the phone. I said, Jessica calling me at 12 o'clock. I'm like, hey, Jay, what's up? And she said, Sarita, I'm just calling to tell you that you received, you know, a full presidential pardon. And I look at the phone and I said, <laughs> what? I was like, well, what does it say? Like, this is crazy. I'm <laughs> read, read it to me. <laughs> so she read it to me. And when she read it and it like included the financial part, I was like, Lord, I don't know. I just started. Oh my goodness. Oh my God. I was like, thank you so much. You know, I appreciate it. Please like tell everybody, thank you, blah, 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 whatever. And I literally went back to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) All right, then. (laughs) Right. All right. Thanks. That's that's a bet. All right. I'm out. That's crazy. Like the next day, it was crazy because like the announcements started coming out about the pardon. So now people are calling, you know, I told my family, my mom was so happy. Just like, you know, it was just like everybody. But I was like, just, I don't know. It was almost like when she told it to me, I think like the sleeping was not even just symbolic of being tired, but it was like 20 years of like stress just released like knowing that my children um could benefit off of the work that i've done or just like not being consistently worried about being audited and things being taken from me it was like just i don't know it was like a deep sleep a sleep of like relief Mm -hmm. as well as like being tired you know so is this indicative of a lot of people who I mean not not people who were pardoned, but the fact that you have that that debt that was like lingering over your head is that indicative to a lot of uh, prisoners that are released when they still are in debt to what they did prior? Yeah, financially, it depends if you get restitution. The crimes that you commit to get restitution, like our crime, didn't have any restitution tied to it. Okay. Uh, even though it was armed robbery, we didn't have any restitution. But the federal statute, a whole list of like offenses that restitution is also mandatory. So like in my case, restitution is a part of it. So you're going to get the time and restitution. Uh So like a lot of women are saddled with restitution. So like maybe about a year and a half ago, we um, went to the Department of Justice to talk about like women who are saddled with federal crime. I mean, um, restitution from their federal convictions. Um, And I was on the panel myself and Judith as the only two women to receive relief from the financial crime. But I'm sitting there with women who one woman did 12 years and she had a $13 million restitution. Another woman did 13 years and had a $575 million restitution. Like, so not even no work, nothing work related inside (laughs) the system could actually help pay that off. Nothing. Zero, nothing, nothing. So then and the crazy thing is, is that like a lot of these individuals are being charged 
with something in its entirety. So like a lot of the women that was there with me that day were convicted underneath the um the mortgage crisis or mortgage mm -hmm. scandal like when the mortgages were being written by the big banks and stuff like this. So these were actually the people on the ground. So the banks got bailed out. The banks didn't get convicted or anything. They went after the mortgage officers, these attorneys right. that were signing the documents and they were being charged with the full amount of mortgages that the bank put in or all of this and the restitution. And the banks got built out. And, and, and the restitution was laying with these women. Wow. That's just, re it's ridiculous. And, and, you know, to put some perspective on it for the listeners. So by this time, so this was 2009 that you were released and this was 10 years. How much do you 11, know? How 11 years. 11 years. Oh yeah. I'm sorry. 11 years. Yeah. No, so I'm like literally almost to the day I was released to the halfway house January 9th. So it was, and it was damn near 11 years. It was like a little, right at 11 years in a few days. So it was damn near like on the anniversary of my release. Cause I got the part in January 19th. So 11 years and 10 days, but I mean like. That's crazy. What, yeah. what, what did you, do you know how much you paid of that 1.9 million in those 11 years? So no. plus the 10 that you served. Cause you yeah. paid while you were in prison. The whole time. So it was 20 years I had been paying essentially. So yeah, I have a printout of what it was, but. It was so like I hadn't even made a dent in the one point. <laughs> it still was like I probably was in the change because remember I told you it drew interest, so I probably right. hit, but amounted the to 30, the thirty-one cents. The thirty-one yeah. cent got taken yeah. care of. <laughs> but is is you know I think that's the advocacy part. Like you just you triggered a thought in my head, and I don't know if you were thinking about this, Cam, but it like. You 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 said it before the new life sentence. Like you think about this without a pardon, like you you basically your life, and I hate to say it like this, but your life is over the way it, it's over as you know it. Because how can you ever you can never do anything that is going to be successful because everything you do will continually be garnished. Like, how can you ever work like 575 million, right? Like, I get it. Look, I don't have no, you know, what was the big, the big mortgage boom? What was dude's name? I don't remember what it was. Uh, whoever it was, I ain't got no sympathy for him, right? Like at the end of the day, you was foul. You were stealing people's money. You had people jumping off bridges because you took they, they, they life savings, right? Oh, you talking about burning metal? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, don't, I don't have no sympathy for that, right? Like at the end of the day. But at you, the end you, of the day, like Bernie Madoff also had money, right? Like oh, he, exactly, exactly. He benefited financially from it. Most people that you give restitution to, like you gave That's me twenty nine million dollars in restitution, and it was on damages, and the car dealership had been got insurance by the insurance company. <laughs> so, so who are you paying? His estate, supposedly, but the thing with the federal system, let me tell you, let me just give you a little bit more of the scam, right? When you pay restitution, you pay into this big pot of money to the federal government your victim may not even receive your payment mm -hmm. because it's going into this big pot and then they pay out the money so you're not even paying directly to the person Somebody in the walmart you're, you're, you're paying the system 
you're How paying about, the system. And the people basically. probably don't get paid out unless they request the payment. Listen, my and then I'm gonna give you even one better. The hmm. gentleman who owned the dealership that we um stole the cars from, he was deceased. So he died literally like a year after we went to prison. So his estate was collecting the money, mm. but the dealership was made whole back up and running and booming after because when we committed the crime, they were investigating the owner of the dealership initially because the dealership was in the red and they thought that he <laughs> burned the dealership down to you know benefit off of it so he was being he was being investigated for his own arson correct correct wow wow <laughs> the plot thickens if you, if you knew a little bit more information you've got you would have got away with it <laughs> <laughs> you'd be like man jerry <laughs> y'all look at jerry like, i don't know if that, i don't know if that's his name but uh whatever his name was wow this is a, you know, when we think about this, and I, I've read so many things here, you know, in your bio and, and articles that have been done, like you really have, um, you've really stepped up and become a tremendous advocate, uh, not only on prison reform, but also on conversations of women uh, that have been justice impacted. And, you know, as I learned uh, at Horizons, um, when the young lady, I can't think of her name now from, from Texas, uh, when she talked about like the uh, women who are justice impacted or system impacted, like their ability to get work when they get out is like, it, it's, it's, re, it, it's almost impossible. Alexa, Alexa, you're talking about Alexa. Yeah. That's her name. When she talked about that, like, I'll be honest, like being justice impacted, it is it, still, it floored me to think about that. Uh, the opportunities that may exist or that don't exist, right? Or you have restitution and you get out and you got to go work at, you know, whatever your local McDonald's or work at a local hotel just to try to make ends meet. And Well, there's a statistic, you know, um, out there that I like to tell people about just how different it is for women, specifically black women and any other population, right? Um Black women, 44% of black women will be unemployed for five years after release. 44%. Yes. And it's will be, which is, an, which is a yes. statement, not possibly. Not it's will be. Will be. 44%. Jeez. Ooh. That's, that, that's nothing but a setup, man. It's, it's nothing but a setup for folks to end up going back to prison. And, and I think it is, it's, it's really tough. Like I said in the beginning, you know, with you being our first uh, woman joining us, it's really tough to find women who've served time in prison and are willing to talk about their experience. And that, that, that stat right there, that statistic tells me why, like you folks are struggling when they get out, they're just trying to make end meet, you know, they may not want to talk about it. They might be trying to do whatever they can to take care of their families. And and the and the turnaround from you exiting prison and getting your your pardon, I'm assuming I'm, I know a lot of stuff was happening prior to you uh, having your pardon, but the fact that you were uh, received your degree in laboratory science, you're nationally certified uh, in clinical laboratory science, 
uh, founded Operation Restoration in 2016. Um, I mean, obviously, you're a go getter and a, a, a elbow rubber because you are building relationships. You got uh, the Benson family from the Gail Benson from New Orleans Saints, and uh, the new uh, the Pelicans is uh, a, a, a supporter. John Legend is John Legend just from New Orleans. No, but John Legend's mom was incarcerated. Oh, word! Didn't I, I didn't know, know that. that. Okay. Yeah, so that's why he started like the social entrepreneurship program for formerly incarcerated people. So his his nonprofit is Unlock Futures. So I'm assuming that has to do with. So no, his is um, Free America. So Free America, New Profit, and Bank of America came together to do the okay. Unlock Futures Fellowship. Gotcha. Wow. Okay. And um, who is the governor that appointed you in the the the, the Justin Reinvestment uh, Council? So he's our outgoing governor right now, Governor John Bell Edwards. He leaves off. Edwards. Okay. Um, okay. January and you know our new governor Jeff Landry is coming in. <laughs> I was wondering if that was the one. Okay. So <laughs> the other one like got you in. <laughs> man I this mean, is yeah as we as we sit there even when you're talking about that like one of our questions is like what's your highest success since your release but i mean he's you know can just like named off a handful like in continual like to me and 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 you may disagree like to me your highest success was like getting that bill passed like that is that's changing that is that's being a change maker. That's that's creating opportunity instead of just saying this is all about me. You you said not only is this all about me, but I'm going to make sure that I'm going back and making sure that other folks are taken care of as well. You know, so I, I think, you know, one of the questions, you know, as we as we get close to wrapping up and it, it's been stable, I guess we should have stole the iPad a little while ago. Uh, we would have been straight, but it, we, we're going to be good. This, this has been fantastic. Like thinking about education. And I think, to be honest, Ken, I think she's the perfect person to ask this question to uh, out of some of the folks that we've had on. You had education prior to going to prison. You pursued education once you were released. How important do you feel education is to help individuals avoid prison? Well, I mean, like, there's... So I, I took classes while I was incarcerated. Too. Okay. But... There's a statistic like that tells you exactly how important it is, right? It says that if a person steps foot on a campus, not even take class, just go there and take a tour, the recidivism rate um, drops to somewhere around 25% or so, 22%, something like that, right? If a person just takes classes, it goes to somewhere around 18%. If a person gets an associate's degree, it goes to 12%. They get a bachelor's degree, it goes down to 6%. If it's a master's, it goes down to 2%, and the PhD is 0%. So just knowing that, and of course, education is not supposed to be used as a tool to combat recidivism, right? But if you think about it in those terms, it makes perfect sense to give people access to education if you don't want them to go back to prison. Like, there's statistics that are readily available that give you this information. So, like, to me, it's a no-brainer. Everybody who gets out of prison should go to school. Mm -hmm. 
of some sort, whether it's vocational, whether it's mm -hmm. technical, whether it's college, whatever, if you connect somebody directly from prison to education, they they won't recidivate. Like, yeah, simple. And I think that's it. Is is what what mechanisms can be in place? And I think you to get in the band of boxing is to have started there with at the university. Like that was tremendous. Um, like I, I can't tell you enough of how much. It also like. Sage, I'm sorry. Stop, please. <laughs> this has been my favorite. I'm gonna be honest. I, I know, I know the homie can. He's like, man, this is uh, this is rough. Uh, our technical difficulties, but this has been my favorite, favorite episode. <laughs> She's her head. Get out. <laughs> I mean, I've I've never actually. I mean, it, it was one thing to get uh, Gubernero a. Uh, is it gubern gubernatorial. gubernatorial 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 that don't even make no sense in the, the derivative of governor but gubernatorial <laughs> pardons to have a united states pardon from in front of me is really 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 strange to me and i have to like like i don't i can't even give enough applause to how how hard i mean you worked every angle you could work to get this to happen and it, it, the accolades to you to actually make it happen and then mm -hmm. after that uh, turn around and give no reason for people to question why you got it. 100%. It, it definitely, because you could see you, I love that point that you're thinking about there is some people could be like, oh, well, it's because, you know, they may not know, but you know, folks, oh, it's because you know so-and-so that, nah, this, mm -hmm. this, I don't give a damn who you knew. Like, at the end of the day, you've proved that it will, you, you earned your pardon. Mm -hmm. This wasn't a, this wasn't a favor, right? The favor was making sure that it gets shuffled through, but there wasn't no favor that happened for you to earn a pardon. You've done, you've gone above and beyond. You've created change for people to come behind you. Uh, so you 100% uh, earn that pardon. And and Cam, before you, before you, you sign us off, like how you do reading that, I gotta, I gotta go back and say, Sarita, you the first nonprofit in New Orleans to focus on women's uh, women that are justice impacted. You're one of the first, actually the first one or two, depends on which one they sign first, to get remission. Like the first woman ever to get remission in your pardon process. Like, I don't understand if my listeners really realize who we have here on the show today uh, and the impact that she's created. Uh, for people that many of you may even know that have been impacted by the justice system, but not only who she has, but who she will continue to impact. Um, this, yeah, this is wow. I'm just. Did you, did you know when I met you, I was running for U.S. Senate? I didn't. No, I did not. I saw that as well. I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> what? Uh, yeah, that I saw that in your. Wait, where that? I, I know, right? Yeah. Yeah, after I got my pardon, I ran for office. I was like, I'm sick of this. You know, might as well, might hey, as well go for it. You know what? That's what you got to do. I ran for school board. I ain't run for Senate. I should have ran for Senate. I, but school board, um, and you know what's funny? I don't know if you heard the same thing I heard. Uh, he's only running for school board because he got a pardon. I was like, man, I ain't, I ain't the pardon ain't got nothing to do. I can, I can run for school board because I got a pardon. It's not the reason I'm running for school board. How did that go? Like quickly, how did that go for you? Like, like that process? You know what? I think because I've been so open about like my past and all that type of stuff, like they really couldn't use like my criminal history, like against me or whatever. Nice. 
you know, um, and it did come up, but then the pardon would come up and then the fact that I got the pardon from Trump would come up. So that was more of a conversation starter than like actually my platform, my experience, you know, how bad of a job our current Senator John Kennedy is doing, like conversations came up about, you know, um, that. Well, you, wasn't, you went against the Kennedy? John Kennedy, yeah. The oh, you a G, Sarita? The, the lineage Kennedy, the Kennedy Kennedy? Like a real life Kennedy Kennedy? I feel like he's probably, I don't know, related or not, whatever, but he's like a Republican here. I think he's I think he's running for president. No, I don't think so. He couldn't possibly. No, that's that's the other that's think that's, that's another Kennedy. That's another Kennedy. Okay. No, so All I right. was with our US Senator John Kennedy um here. He's from he's actually from Mississippi, but he um came to Louisiana younger or whatever. So okay. he's our two term right now US Senator. Um but anyway. So a lot of the conversation around the election became about like my partner, not necessarily like the work and me having experience, but I was the only woman in the race. Louisiana has never elected a black woman to a statewide office in the history of the state. Um, Four out of 13 candidates because Louisiana has jungle primaries. Everybody runs against everybody. We don't have any party primaries. Mm. Um, so I finished fourth out of 13 candidates and that was my first time running for office. So that means you got to do it again. No, right. absolutely not. No. <laughs> see, hey, that's I what I'm talking about. You see, she people, said exactly what I said. People were like, you should run for school, but I said never again. I would rather work to get people unelected because what that process taught me is that the true power inside of politics does not reside with the politicians. Ooh, say that again. The true power in politics does not reside with the politicians. If I if I haven't heard <laughs> if I haven't heard a more truer statement in 2023, it, I'm telling you, it's 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 crazy. So I salute you. I truly salute you because I went through that same thing of like running and having, and I had no money. I, I raised money. Right. But like having that ability to run, it, it feel, it felt good. Right. It felt like, yeah, it, it, like I, I, we talked about on, on, on when we did my episode, like going to the gun range felt great. Right. It was like, man, I, it isn't was cause it was like, yeah, I want to go shoot. It was like, man, I'm free. I'm free. I could do what I want to do now. And even running in an election was like, I'm free. I can do what I want to do now. So I salute you for running. Absolutely. Uh, that That is super dope. And I, I got it highlighted here, too. So I'm glad you brought that up because it was in uh, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about. Well, I mean, the fact that you are and we need more people in your position um, and your um, in your knowledge base to fight the system, because you and I both know how historically corrupt um, New Orleans has been and the state of Louisiana in their own capacity. Like it literally is the only state in the nation that still has parishes. I mean, like, I mean, they, they, they have their own understanding of, of, of life. <laughs> in Louisiana. So obviously there has to be somebody there to be a change agent. And there's no better person that has been through what you've been through to actually be a person and a voice of reason yes. down there. Agreed. And I applaud you and your efforts uh, down there. And um, that's, that's, I have land. I have land in Louisiana, so I still am a person. I'm a Louisiana resident. <laughs> <laughs> it's still my heart. He's a Louisiana. I'm a Louisianian, 
and I, it's in my heart. And uh, I, I would love to keep in contact with you to hear how you continue to move, uh, move the. Yeah, uh, definitely. Is is there anything that's there. next? Like, what's next as you think about this? <laughs> I don't know. Like, you know, world domination. <laughs> Put the baby to bed. <laughs> Um, no, I really think that like the evolution for me is like really understanding that all of these like disciplines of justice. So I I created this thing called Seer Justice Principles, and it just really talks about how social, economic, racial, and environmental justice are not separate. Mm. They're like all so interdependent and also interwoven and like are so dependent on one another for all of them to exist, you know, like, and if we don't begin talking about their racial, social, economic and environmental impacts of all decisions as a whole, like you don't often hear people talk about prisons being like one of the number one polluters, right? Hmm. You don't talk about, you know, how inside of prisons, the same racial caste systems exist, even in like being in prison, right? Mm -hmm. And then when we talk about like economic equity and like environmental and equitable justice, the people that experience the most hardships, um, the most social injustices are people who are also economically disadvantaged. So they're all like interdependent upon each other. So really beginning to like that's something that we do internally at the organization anyway we address all but we may not talk about it in that way because we're like cornered off into social justice so really um broadening and expanding the impact that we have across all genres of um justice you know folks and work that you do so i think that's 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 where i'm shifting um to that you know, I wanna, I wanna, uh, I'm gonna have Can hook some stuff. We're gonna throw a little thing on here um, for listeners that are joining the show if this is your first time, or if you followed us uh, for season one. Um, definitely, please show your support to Operation Restoration, um, the great work that's being done by Sarita and her team there uh, to really change the lives uh, of individuals who've been system impacted. What's the, what's the website for for? So it's www or-nola.org. And on the website, you are able to find out about all of the programs we have. We have 15 different programs that we've run, um, some information about who we are and exactly what we do. And then um, if you decide you want to follow us on social media, on our social media channels, it is Operation Restoration, the OR. Uh, yep. Nice. This is this has been fantastic. Sarita, thank you so much. Thank I'm so, so glad. Much. I'm so glad I was in that room to meet you and to hear your dynamic story. Uh, we've been talking about you. For, I'm telling for a you. Long time. Look, we've been we've been <laughs> we've been stressing trying to we like, man, we got I said, hey, I'd have told I'd have told Ken, I said, we gotta get her on, man. We gotta figure it out. Uh so shout out to Dominique, your assistant as well. She's worked with us really tough to make sure we could get you scheduled. I know my schedule. A lot of it is my schedule and canned uh, his schedule. So it was like really trying to get everything matched up. So I'm really glad that we were able to make today work. I know we had some uh, a few technical difficulties, but I'll tell you what.
man, we got some dope, it was, dope it was, content. It was very worth, very yes. well worth it. And I, I appreciate the time you gave us because it was a lot. I know you have your family with you, and uh, happy holidays to you, yes, um, and your family, and uh, much, much uh, uh, blessings to your work and and yes, in uh, the ser- uh, social services out there to make sure that people are treated uh, uh, fairly. Um, I, we usually close out with the uh, the closing statement of each uh, each guest's um, pardon. Um, this is much shorter than anyone that I've ever read. But I'm gonna read it anyway. <laughs> so crazy how grandiose this is, and it's I so, know, it's right? So, That's what I'm saying. Like, but you think about my the governors. It's like, six, it's like, it's six, like six, this six, long, and it's like this. Whereas like this, whereas this, yeah, like a out. scroll. This is just like, yep. All right, so. So this is the words of uh, Donald J. Trump. I hereby designate, direct, and empower the acting party attorney as my representative to sign a grant of clemency to the person named herein. The acting pardon, the acting pardon attorney shall declare that her action is the act of the president being performed at my direction. In testimony whereof I have hereunto caused this pardon to be recorded with Department of Justice. Congratulations. It's Rita Stive. And it's funny, I had a friend in high school, her last name was Stive, and she was Jewish. <laughs> you know, that's that's a story for another day, but it's like, <laughs> yeah. it, has a, it has a German. So Stive is a German um, origin. Uh-huh. So I'm just wow. I'm just gonna let that land your spirit. <laughs> I, I had no idea what you looked like, who you were. He showed me a picture of you right before you came on board. I was like, that's not who I expected. <laughs> but here we are. <laughs> uh, so Rita, it's been absolutely fantastic. Hey, I'll be down in New Orleans in uh in April for a conference. I'll definitely be sure to link up and hook up, hook up with you. I get you some pardon me swag there since you got me this dope operation restoration swag. I'll, I'll send I'll send some gremlin uh, gear down for you. <laughs> yeah, you see Her that? Face serious? <laughs> she was like, "Okay, go on to sit if you want to." I need to go on to clean up my flow with, uh, you know, I could go on and it's burn not- it for some firewood or something. My house. <laughs> no GSU, uh, no GSU stuff. Yeah, that's a whole another story for me for another day too about gremlin. Can knows my story we about it as no well with my brother. So no yeah, you know. they got me my undergrad. Thank <laughs> you. I appreciate it. This has been fantastic. We will let you know uh, when it gets posted. But this has been, uh, Sarita. I can't. I cannot say enough how much I appreciate you and uh, and continue Same. to applaud you for the great work that you continue to do. Uh, and I look forward to to watching you. St- Dom- world domination, straight up world domination. Yeah. Tell your son, thank you for as much as he cl- could do to help babysit. Yeah, and there. tell your daughter, thanks for the iPad. Listen, that my three year old, she wild. She wild. <laughs> he was struggling. He like- <laughs> <laughs> well, I, we I, we'll take care of him. when I come down. I have to slide you a twenty to hand him or something. But uh, <laughs> yeah. this is uh, this has been fantastic. Happy holidays to you and your family. Uh, thank you again for taking the time out and uh, uh, you know. As we close out, you know, I, I give a close out, uh, a closing statement here. Um, you know, you heard today uh, the story from Syreta is, is like many across the country uh, that exhibit success after incarceration, along with the perseverance and patience to seek a pardon. As we heard today, seeking a pardon is not easy. It's not something that happens overnight. It's not something that can be bought. It's not something that 
even in the, the most simplest of conversations, you can convince somebody that you've earned a pardon. Uh, but the Pardon Podcast is honored to bring these stories to inform, inspire, and motivate you, our listener, with the goal of humanizing the mistakes we all have made in our lives and celebrating those second chances as much as we can. Thank you again to Syreta and, and thank you uh, to our official beverage sponsor, uh, Be Clear Water of the Pardon Me podcast. If you haven't subscribed to the Pardon Me YouTube channel, hit that like, share, and subscribe to all of our social channels, Pardon Me. Uh, until the next time, you always know I close out like this, Can. Till the next time, remember, failure is never an option. For more information about specific pardon requirements and eligibility in your state, visit PardonMe22.com and search on the Pardon Resources tab. Pardon Me is a brand for those who support Second Chances. 